0: A Service Mesh is an abstraction that provides traffic routing, policy management, and telemetry for a distributed application. A Service Mesh consists of a data plane and a control plane. In the data plane, a proxy runs alongside each service, with every request from a service being routed through the proxy. In the control plane, an application owner can control the behavior of the proxies distributed throughout the application. As the Kubernetes ecosystem has developed, the service mesh abstraction has become an increasingly desirable component of a cloud-native application stack. As companies enthusiastically adopt Kubernetes, they eventually find themselves with a large distributed system that is difficult to operate. A service mesh simplifies some of these operational difficulties, as we have explored in numerous previous episodes. The Kubernetes community has grown to include lots of enterprises, and those enterprises want to adopt service mesh. But today, many of them are afraid to adopt the technology because there are multiple competing products, and it is unclear which one of these products the community will centralize around, or if the community will end up supporting multiple projects. Over the next few weeks, we will be airing interviews from KubeCon EU 2019 from Barcelona. These interviews are a window into the world of the Kubernetes and cloud-native ecosystems, which are transforming the world of infrastructure software. The most prominent theme across these shows, these nine shows from KubeCon, was that of service mesh. Why was service mesh such an important topic? because the battle for service mesh supremacy is a classic technology competition between a giant incumbent company and a startup with far fewer resources. The Kubernetes ecosystem is beautifully engineered to allow for a marketplace of warring ideas where the most worthy competitor wins out. But in some cases, there is room for multiple products to occupy different subsections of the market. Across these episodes, one theme that we will explore is the governance and the diplomacy of these competing solutions, and how the Kubernetes ecosystem is structured to allow for harmonious resolution to technology battles. It is tempting to look at this competition between service meshes as winner-take-all, but as of late May 2019, we do not yet know if it will be winner-take-all. In order to predict how the service mesh wars will play out, the best we can do is to look at historical examples. Container orchestration wars was a winner-take-all market. Container orchestration was a problem of such depth, such technical complexity and integration, that there had to be a single winner for the ecosystem to marshal around. During the container orchestration wars, as Mesos and Docker Swarm and HashiCorp Nomad, and finally Kubernetes, fought for supremacy, many large enterprises made bets on container orchestration systems which were not Kubernetes. When the dust settled, Kubernetes was the victor, and these large enterprises who had adopted container orchestration systems other than Kubernetes begrudgingly began thinking about how to migrate to Kubernetes. But during the container orchestration wars, many more enterprises were sitting out altogether. They did not choose Kubernetes or Mesos or Swarm. They chose to wait. Enterprise technologists are smart, and they can tell when a technology is immature. Although many enterprises wanted an orchestration system to manage their Docker containers, they did not want to insert a heavy abstraction that they would have to tear out later on. Once Kubernetes won the orchestration wars, enterprise dollars piled into the space. The cloud-native community has grown faster than anyone expected, because we solved the collective action problem of centralizing on a particular container orchestrator, Kubernetes. From enterprises, to cloud providers, to independent software vendors, to podcasters, We all share the same vision for Kubernetes. It is the Linux for distributed systems. Within the Kubernetes ecosystem, the thought leadership tries not to pick winners. It's better for everyone if the winners are decided through competition. In order to foster competition, interfaces into Kubernetes can provide a layer of standardization along which different products can compete. Enterprises can buy into an interface without buying into any particular product. What does that mean? Well, examples include the Container Networking Interface, CNI, and the Container Storage Interface, CSI. Every Kubernetes application wants storage, and every Kubernetes application wants networking. But these Kubernetes applications might not want to be locked into a particular networking or storage provider and that provider's particular proprietary APIs. Since there is a standardized interface for networking and storage within the ecosystem, these enterprise applications that want to adopt some particular technology that's selling to them, they can be insulated from lock-in. These applications can potentially swap out one storage provider for another, or one networking provider for another. So, how does this relate to service mesh? In the service mesh market, Buoyant was first to market with its open source project LinkerD. Today's guest, William Morgan, is the CEO of Buoyant. Over the last four years, LinkerD has slowly grown a following of dedicated users who run the open-source service mesh Linkerd in production. Over the last four years, Linkerd has changed from its initial technology of the embedded JVM service proxy developed at Twitter to a Rust-based sidecar data plane and a Go-based control plane. Buoyant's dedicated focus to the service mesh space has won over much of the community as was evidenced by Linkerd becoming the predominant apparel brand at KubeCon EU 2019. Linkerd hats and t-shirts were everywhere at the conference. Why did Linkerd become trendy? Ironically, it's because of a competing service mesh whose launch strategy was widely seen as an affront to the spirit of the cloud-native community. Istio was created within Google, and launched with a set of brittle partnerships with IBM and other companies. Istio careened into the Kubernetes ecosystem with violent fanfare, trumpeting itself as the cloud-native service mesh du jour through endless banner ads, marketing email campaigns, and KubeCon programming. Any listener to this podcast knows that I am as gullible as any technologist. I'm an idealist and I wanted to believe that Istio represented the service mesh equivalent of Kubernetes. It's from Google, it launched with a bunch of impressive logos, it has an inspiring vision, looks cloud-native, smells cloud-native, must be cloud-native, right? Unfortunately, Istio's early marketing aggrandizements were disconnected from the nascent realities of the project. Istio was buggy and difficult to set up, and it quickly developed a reputation as Google-manufactured vaporware. Nice idea, not nearly ready for production. For Linkerd, the timing could not have been better. Istio's romantic vision of an operating plane for routing traffic and managing security policy and measuring network telemetry had seduced the enterprise masses. Finally, they were ready for the service mesh. But with their cravings unmet by Istio, these enterprises surveyed the market and quickly found their way to Linkerd, the humble service mesh next door who had been waiting patiently all along. The tide has turned against Istio, and towards Linkerd, but the service mesh wars have just begun, and as easy as it is to criticize Istio, the project is not only vaporware. Istio has a vision for a detailed operating plane that will evolve together with Envoy, a service proxy sidecar developed at Lyft. Perhaps Istio's early embers had too much marketing gasoline poured on them initially, but the project could still succeed. It's not easy to build a service mesh, so it's no surprise that it had issues at its early days just happened to not align with how much it was promoted. Google is the most sophisticated, well-resourced company in the world, and judging from Google's adjacent strategic messaging around Anthos and other strategic initiatives, the company has already decided that Istio will be around for the long haul. As a community, we should be grateful to witness the folly of Istio's carpet bomb marketing strategy. It is validation for the earnest resilience of the cloud-native community that even under the omnipresent duress of Google marketing, the community was able to collectively reject the Istio Kool-Aid. This should come as no surprise. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation resides within the Linux Foundation, and the Kubernetes ecosystem has been ordained with the ardent technical purity of Linus Torvalds. The CNCF was formed under the looming shadow of AWS, Amazon Web Services. The CNCF was seeded with the donation of Kubernetes by Google. Much like the Linux community was positioned as a rebellious movement in reaction to Microsoft's dominance, the Kubernetes community represents a fervent desire to open up the market to cloud providers beyond the tight-lipped, proprietary dominion of Amazon. With such a deep spirit of insubordination, It is no surprise that the community has rejected Istio, like a set of loosely coupled organs rejecting a foreign skin attempting to layer itself across them. Even though the CNCF was founded by Google, the community was formed in spite of big centralized clouds, not as a marketing vessel for their products, which may or may not be open source. Microsoft seems to understand this fact better than Google, at least in the domain of service mesh. The day after this interview with William, Microsoft announced the Service Mesh Interface, SMI, which is a project it partnered with Buoyant and other companies on to create a minimal spec for what a service mesh should offer to a Kubernetes deployment. The SMI represents a safe buy-in point for enterprises who want a service mesh but do not want to get caught in the evangelistic crossfire between Istio and Linkerd. It is in this environment that we begin our next series of shows on the current cloud-native ecosystem. Thanks to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation for putting together an amazing podcasting zone at KubeCon. Thank you to Wendy and Natasha and Dan Kahn and everybody else who put together KubeCon this was really an amazing event and it has just improved every different conference and the attention to the podcasters needs have really been met. So I, I love this conference. I'm definitely going to be going to San Diego and just a few announcements that are unrelated to this episode. We have a new software daily app version for iOS in the app store This is the next iteration of our app, and it's got a whole lot of polish. You can use the app to access all more than 1,000-plus episodes in one place. You can find all shows related to a particular technology, like streaming data or cryptocurrencies or Kubernetes or learning to program. You can connect with other listeners through the comments section. You can access our transcripts and our related links. Everything in the app is free, although you can also become an ad-free listener and support the show for $10 a month or $100 per year. You can find that subscription information at softwaredaily.com slash subscribe if you want to support us. And you can become a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily if you want to go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor to air ads or to partner with us on content. I realize it's probably not smart to advertise that sponsorship offering right after the ad-free offering, but most people don't pay to become ad-free subscribers. So we're hiring two interns also. We're hiring an intern for software engineering and one for business development. If you're interested in either of these positions, you can send an email with your resume to jeff at com. You can put internship in the subject line. That would help me filter that email to the correct folder in case we get deluged with internship offerings. That said, let's get on with today's interview with William Morgan. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is sponsored by Datadog, a cloud-scale monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and traces from technologies like Istio, AppMesh, and Envoy. Plus, Datadog's Service Map automatically plots out the dependencies in your microservices architecture for seamless, context-rich troubleshooting. With rich visualizations, algorithmic alerting, and more than 250 supported vendor integrations, Datadog allows you to monitor your distributed applications in real time. Start a free 14-day trial today by visiting softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog and datadog will send you a complimentary t-shirt which includes nice fabric that can keep you warm as a t-shirt will but it also keeps you cool because a t-shirt is is just for the summer go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash datadog to get that free t-shirt and to get signed up for a 14 day trial of datadog William Morgan, you are the CEO of Buoyant. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff, thanks for having me. We had a container orchestration wars, and it turned out to be winner take all with Kubernetes winning. Is the service mesh market winner take all?
1: Wow, start with the really difficult questions. I don't know, I'm not sure, and I think it's a little early for anyone really to be able to know. You know, certainly I would like Linkerd, which I am heavily involved with, to, to win, I guess, in, in, in some sense. But really, I think for me, it's more important that the sorts of functionality that Linkerd can, can give to the world is available to people. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's tempting to frame things as a war. I don't know how helpful it is. And I think it's a little early for anyone to say, yeah, there's going to be, it's one, one is going to take them all and, and all the others are going to be left in the dust.
0: Kubernetes seemed like a winner-take-all sensibly because container orchestration, it's its a hard technical problem. There's lots of network effects. There's network effects in the developer community. There's also network effects within a particular company, so you don't really want multiple container orchestration systems in your company. What are the network effects of service mesh, or or can you imagine a world in which there are multiple... Service meshes and how would that contrast with the multiple container orchestration framework potential future that we could have had?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's really that's a really interesting way to think about it. I was largely kind of divorced from the container wars. I I cut my orchestration wars, uh, my orchestration teeth at at Twitter, which you know was a Mesos shop, and so that was very that was how I thought about container orchestration, well orchestration, I guess we didn't really have containers as we know them today. And then when I when I left Twitter 2000, circa 2014, the rest of the world was adopting all these crazy things, Docker and, and, and starting to see some glimmerings of, of Kubernetes even way back then. So I wasn't kind of present in the industry for a lot of that. So I'm a little reluctant to speak about the container orchestration wars. But I guess, you know, one, one difference that I see between adopting something like Kubernetes and adopting a service mesh is that Kubernetes has a very large API surface area. It's a lot of technology to adopt, right? And, and I think the same thing is true of, of Mesos, maybe a little less so of console, which seem, um, of Nomad, I'm sorry, which seems to be a, a little simpler. But I think in contrast to that large surface area, the service mesh can be a lot simpler and I think we have purposefully with Linkerd uh, tried to make it as, as simple and as lightweight as possible and make it as little of a commitment as possible, which runs a little counter to, I think, kind of our natural tendencies as engineers, which is, you know, we wanna build these amazing platforms and everything's a platform and everything's gonna be, you know, take over take over the world. So we've worked hard to focus on on Linkerd, especially being seen as more of a tool. And I think in that world, although we have yet to encounter a company that runs Linkerd as well as another service mesh, I think that's certainly a possibility. And we definitely have encountered companies who run multiple orchestrators because once something is in, it's very hard to to remove it. And so you know, you'll <laughs> I think especially in kind of uh, more mature organizations, you'll find lots of different, you know, kind of this historical strata of technology that they've adopted. None of it really goes away. So that's all to say, I think there may be some dynamics in the service mesh world, kind of specific to the technology that make it a little less one size fits all and a little less, okay, it's going to take over the entire organization.
0: What should be the surface area for a service mesh abstraction? If you want to keep it lightweight and you want to keep it tear-outable?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question too. I'm always a little reluctant to uh, start putting in abstraction layers until there's enough kind of exploration of the of the space. But one of the things that uh, was announced at KubeCon, or will be announced at KubeCon, I guess, will be live by the time this uh, podcast goes out, is literally a service mesh abstraction called the service mesh interface that Microsoft has been... Developing that is an abstraction layer over Istio, Linkerd, Console Connect, and in the future, potentially some other service meshes. And, and the way that abstraction was defined was by looking at kind of the core functionality across those three service meshes, which are quite different in, in many ways. But they did have kind of three core bits. One was around telemetry and, and kind of observability. One was around policy. And then um, one was around traffic shifting. And since those were common across all three implementations and you know and, and kind of made sense as a set of functionality that, that all three that the service mesh model as a whole supported, um, that was a pretty natural starting point for SMI. So SMI, you know, as as it is today, has those three interfaces. Obviously that's not complete and there's a lot more that, that has to be built out, and I think there'll be a long process in building out SMI. But it feels like there's been enough exploration of the space that at least some of the core functionality um, across multiple service meshes, is that a point where we can kind of we can kind of capture it?
0: I could imagine that working because you have a world today where a given enterprise has five or ten logging and monitoring and analytics tools, and it's not problematic. We don't need to integrate all of these things, or I guess to the extent that we need to integrate them, maybe we can build some higher level abstractions. Although that doesn't really happen. I guess the Microsoft Service Mesh Interface idea would be that you have some commonalities between these different service meshes, and some service meshes may have a superset of those functionalities, but they all have routing, they all have load balancing, maybe some other features, telemetry. And if they have those commonalities, if that is the spec for the service mesh pattern, then we can at least build a common interface that is at a higher level around those commonalities.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think it's really interesting to look at, and maybe this gets back to your earlier question, why was there not a common interface defined for container orchestrators, right? Why, why was that so much of a, you know, A versus B you know, versus C experience, where you know we're able to find these bits of common functionality across service meshes, and I think that goes back to my earlier comment about kind of the the nature or the the scale of the technology and the API surface area, and how much of an investment you're making in one of these things. Where it's much lighter for the service mesh than for picking a container orchestrator.
0: So, as Microsoft has been developing this service mesh interface what have your conversations with the company been like
1: well so it's been very much kind of an alignment between what we wanted and um, what they were trying to get at like ultimately you know Linkerd users will which is kind of the audience you know of people that i care the most about and, and whose lives i want to improve will be helped by having an interface that is generic across Linkerd, because it allows integrations to be built on Linkerd without the, the, the integrator having to feel like they're being locked into a particular mesh. So I think this opens up a wide world of integrations. One of the things I'm most excited about is there's a project called Flagger um, from Weave, which is a very cool idea. It's something we've been talking about in, in Linkerd land for, for quite a while, which is, okay, let's do a, you know when you do a canary deployment, you know, or, a, or a blue-green deployment, you're doing you know, this partial traffic shifting you know, from one version of code to the other, you should actually be looking at the success rate of the new code. And if that success rate is dropping, well, then you should stop the deployment. You should roll that back. And you know, that's kind of a natural combination of two of these service mesh APIs, one around traffic shifting and one around telemetry. And Flagger kind of prior to SMI, yeah. you know, worked with Istio and I think had worked with, with App Mesh, but those integrations were built kind of one at a time. Yeah. Now with SMI, Flagger is able to to build against any of the service meshes that support SMI, and that's great for Linkerd, right? And that's great for service meshes, and great for that's great for the industry as a whole.
0: That's cool because that's like a higher level pattern that you would want in any application.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And the service mesh, it doesn't make sense for the mesh itself to give you that because that involves a certain amount of business logic. It involves a certain amount of kind of organizational, well, how are we going to do this? Like what's the process for deploying new code? All that stuff, it sits at a higher level than than the mesh does. So it makes a ton of sense for it to be a separate project. I mean flagger is one you know use case you could also imagine any kind of CI CD system doing a very similar thing kind of at the tail end of the deployment pipeline, right? Rather than just cranking the code out there, okay, it passed all the unit. Tests and integration tests, you know, crank it out. You could do the same thing. You can do a, a partial rollout and measure the success rate, and then you know, if things are going south, then stop the stop the rollback and go back to the old code. So that's one example. There's a couple other cool examples in the in the SMI demo of, of other use cases. But ultimately, it's really good for for Linkerd and it's really good for for Kubernetes users everywhere.
0: There are some products that were out earlier then you started working on on Linkerd and, and buoyant well i think these co- these companies are all older but there's kong there's HashiCorp's corpse console connect maybe that was maybe console was was console before or after buoyant yeah console was they were before buoyant yeah but it was a
1: it was a key value key, store. key
0: value store so they've expanded that to be like kind of a service mesh thing and then nginx is obviously old but it's rebranded as having service mesh characteristics cuz it kind of was service mesh before it was before the service mesh was a thing to some extent these older technologies how do they differ from what you are able to do with linkerd d since you're devoted to the identity of a service mesh company and you you kind of always have although you start with the service proxy i guess that's before the term was changed into service mesh what advantage do you have over those other technologies or how, how does your platform differ?
1: Yeah, so I think the answer is the same for Linkerd for, for almost any service mesh. You know, how does a service mesh differ from API gateways? How does it differ from, from ingress? And I think it, you know, we've had proxy technology since the advent of TCP IP networking. Like we've always wanted to have proxies for a variety of reasons. The difference is, I think, in the set of immediate features and in, and in the the set of use cases that are supported and, and the focus for the service mesh of course is on you know what we, what in data data center terms we used to call east west traffic rather than north south so this is a communication that happens between services rather than communication from the outside world that goes through you know your application and then hits a database so i think you know this the, the answer is the same for linkerd as it is for for almost any of the service mesh projects out there which is You know what's what you're asking is basically what's the difference between the service mesh and something like an API proxy or an API gateway, which 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 Kong was at least originally, or something like Nginx, which has primarily been focused on ingress use cases. So how do I get traffic from the outside world like into my data center? And the answer is that the service mesh is focused on what in data center terms we used to call east-west traffic, which is you know rather than kind of uh, north-south, which was Traffic coming in from the outside world and going to our app servers and then hitting our database. Um, it's it's instead it is traffic between applications, right? And, and what's driving the need for that is the move to microservices, ultimately, right? And if you look at you know if you look at kind of Kubernetes and and Docker and things through through that lens, really what those technologies allow you to do is to adopt microservices in a way that solves a lot of the the pain around deployments and, and orchestration. Right, so when when these companies when companies are adopting and organizations are adopting Kubernetes and Docker, they're making it easier and easier to adopt microservices. Microservices, and then suddenly, the service mesh becomes very relevant. Right, and. Th- at its core, the Service Mesh has a bunch of user space proxies. At least that's you know the, the, the implementation we see on, on most of them. And we've had user space proxy technology since the, the beginning of, of TCP IP programming. So it's really more a question of, well, what is the set of functionality that the Service Mesh supports you know, that, that, that is useful, that's necessary in the world of microservices when services are communicating to each other? And so, you know, the, the answer is, well, the communication between services actually is quite different, um, and, it's, and it's weird, you know, in, in a lot of different ways. And so there's a lot of parallels to handling ingress traffic, to handling API gateway traffic, um, but it's not the same. So I'll give you one example, which is on the internet, we like to use TLS, right? And so when your browser connects to a website, you know, you'll see the little green icon and it says HTTPS, and you feel safe and happy because, you know, the encryption is being, the k- traffic is being encrypted between your browser and, and the website. And that avoids a whole class of, you know, scary things that you don't want to have to deal with, like people intercepting your traffic and, and, knowing, and knowing what you're doing. It's a very similar concept, you know, in the service mesh world where something like Linkerd can provide transparent encryption and identity, right? So part of that TLS communication is not just, hey, I want to encrypt stuff, but also you have to prove to me that you are actually yahoo.com. Right? And, and we have these cryptographic ways of saying, okay, I know that the person I'm talking to or the server I'm talking to is yahoo.com. And the same, the same class of problems exists in, in the world of microservices. Right, What you want is, okay, service A talks to service B. You want both A and B to be aware of the identity of the service. And then you want them to start encrypting the traffic. And this falls into this general pattern of uh, uh, or, or concept of zero trust networking. And there's a whole you know, fun set of things we could talk about there. But my point is the mechanics and kind of the requirements of TLS in between services is actually quite different from the mechanics and requirements of TLS um, at the edge. So, for example, at the edge, you need to rely on kind of these public, you know, certificate authorities. You're relying on something like VeriSign to like, you know, to put their stamp of approval and and VeriSign, you know, does a bunch of due diligence to make sure that presumably that, you know, and that Yahoo.com is, you know, the certificate the people who hold the certificate for yahoo.com are actually yahoo in the service mesh world well we don't really care about those external entities we care about an internal entity right so we need an internal ca and we care less about a one-way kind of validation of a validating that it's talking to b and we care more about two-way validation we want b to know that it's a as well as a talking to b and so while it's using tls and while certificates are being exchanged the mechanics are and and the requirements are quite different and that's a very long explanation of one of the sorts of differences of, of kind of east-west or, or you know service-to-service communication versus north-south or kind of ingress communication. Does that make sense?
0: It does. So when I talked to HashiCorp, that TLS feature is the first thing that they have gone after with Console Connect. That with their rebranding of their key value store agent gossip system, which was console, you know, they added TLS handshaking to that and called it console connect. And then console connect, you know, went through the Pokemon evolution from agent-based key value store to uh, service mesh agent plus TLS uh, encryption manager. In that kind of evolution, is there any... Important difference between the quality of service that somebody using console connect is gonna get versus somebody using Linkerd?
1: Quality of service. Hmm, that's interesting. So I think, at least in the way that these systems use TLS and provision identity, I don't think there's a substantial difference. I think there's a lot of details that are different. For example, so Linkerd, uh, let's see, we released 2.3, I think it was last month. And one of the things that we did was we turned mutual TLS on by default. So that means if you install Linkerd in a Kubernetes cluster, by default it provisions a little certificate authority. The certificate authority is issuing keys to each of the proxies. It's, the proxies are rotating those keys every 24 hours. They're tied to Kubernetes service accounts because there's a bunch of um, nice properties about service accounts. So that's and that all happens out of the box, you know, for you. But Linkerd doesn't have, at least not as of 2.3, a way of extending that identity outside of Kubernetes, although that's coming up on the roadmap. Console, you know, by console connect, by contrast, has started from the kind of perspective of, well, we're running outside of Kubernetes, and now we're going to give you these hooks for building into Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. So if your requirement was today, like you know, in the next 24 hours I need to have an identity system that spans, you know, external and internal, and I need these things, and you know, and that's your primary use case, then console connect is a better choice. If you're setting up Kubernetes and you know a Kubernetes-specific solution works for you, then today Linkerd, I would say, is probably a better choice. But those are the sorts of differences. It's not really a fundamental difference between how we're going to think about identity and how we're going to think about encryption. You know, we're all trying to build on top of these well-established primitives that have been around for a long time, like like TLS and, and X-509 certificates.
0: Deploying to the cloud should be simple. You shouldn't feel locked in and your cloud provider should offer you customer support 24 7, because you might be up in the middle of the night trying to figure out why your application is having errors. And your cloud provider's support team should be there to help you. Linode is a simple, efficient cloud provider with excellent customer support. Linode has been offering hosting for 16 years, and the roots of the company are in its name. Linode gives you Linux nodes at an affordable price with security high availability, and customer service. At linode.com SEDaily, you can get started with 2 gigabytes of RAM and 50 gigabytes of SSD for only $10. There are also plans for cheaper and for more money. Linode makes it easy to deploy and scale your application with high uptime and simplicity. Features like backups and node balancers give you additional tooling when you need it. Go to Linode.com slash SEDaily to support Software Engineering Daily and get your application deployed to Linode. That's L-I-N-O-D dot com slash SEDaily. Thank you, Linode, for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Let me posit something that I think is going to be an opportunity for differentiation. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like we're in the nascent stages of more infrastructure deploying this like security or workload identification stack of Open Policy Agent, Spiffy, and Spire, where you have better workload identity, better zero-trust policy management, and that seems to have some tough engineering problems, because you have to kind of have the question of how do new policies get pushed out from the policy manager? Like, how do you rotate those policies and, and things like that? Am I off there? Or does that seem like an area that's going to be, it's going to require some tough engineering and it's going to be an opportunity for you to differentiate?
1: No, you're not wrong. That's definitely, there are a lot of unsolved and significant challenges in that, in that world, especially you know, the sorts of things that, that Spiffy and, and Opa address are kind of these very generic questions around, well, how do we codify policy you know, in kind of the general sense in a way that can be applied to all sorts of different policy across all sorts of layers of the stack, you know, and that's 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 what OPA is very good at, and, and Spiffy is kind of the counterpart for how do we specify identity, you know, in a way that's that can be applied anywhere in, in your stack, and those are both very important problems for for enterprises. For Linkerd, we take a much more tactical approach. So I, I certainly don't I don't disagree that this will be a, a point of differentiation, but for me and for most of the Linkerd maintainers, we are a little less focused on the kind of how do we solve generic enterprise problems and we're much more focused on okay if you have adopted kubernetes and you need to get like x y and z in place how can we give that to you in a way that is as rapid as possible you know that is as low config and that's as low management overhead as possible and so that's why for us you know it made a lot of sense you know to, to ship a CA you know that runs in the Kubernetes control plane in the Linkerd control plane in, in Kubernetes and to do all the TLS stuff for you so that out of the box you don't have to do anything you just get effectively zero trust security for your Kubernetes cluster now ultimately this is a this is a question of you know what's the starting point because on the roadmap for Linkerd is okay give you the ability to you know, actually use a CA that's outside of the cluster, because that's important once you get to multiple clusters, and gives you the ability to extend the proxy so that you can run the Linkerd proxy outside of Kubernetes. And that involves figuring out how to do identity. So you know, all these things will happen, right? It's just a question of what's the starting point? Is the starting point, OK, I have to solve this very hairy enterprise problem in a way that's generic across a lot of use cases, or do I have to solve this very, very focused kind of Kubernetes-centric problem? And we've taken the, the latter approach.
0: Google started a project called Istio that's been out for, I think, a year now. How production-ready
1: is Istio? <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not going to speak for the Istio project. Well, they didn't either.
0: <laughs> that makes two of you.
1: I did really enjoy your your podcast with Eric Brewer, and I thought it was really interesting. I had a I had a comment on Twitter about this, too. I thought it was interesting how non-committal he was around when you, when you asked that question. And, well, so, you know, on the one hand, look, as an engineer, right, like, what does it mean to say anything's production-ready? Like, you're always a little nervous, you know, you're always, like, in the back of your mind, you're like, well, you know, I know it has, you know, X, Y, and Z, and, like, you know, for these cases, it's not going to... Uh. So it's always, uh, I think, as an engineer, a little scary to say, yes, this is ready for production. Once you're an executive at a at a major cloud provider it struck me as a little strange that he didn't have a more uh i guess confident answer but i don't want to read into that i thought it was interesting you know and i and i i had a good conversation on twitter about it but ultimately you know there are companies that are running seo in production right and there are companies that are running Linkerd in production and you know by that definition it's production ready and then by by many other definitions you know you know there's there's always things that you there's always more things that you want
0: now, I'm not trying to, like, criticize Istio relentlessly. I just think their marketing strategy is hilarious because of how pervasive it is, despite the fact that... But in terms of design differences, one positive thing I will say about Istio is, and one way I think notably different, it, it's different than Linkerd. Not better or worse, different, is the fact that Istio is plugged into the Envoy ecosystem. And Envoy has that level of traction as an open source project where it's, you know, it, there are multiple companies who have, multiple big companies with tons of resources. Lyft having an interest in Envoy and Envoy kind of seeming like a, a thick... It's a well developed ecosystem. It's going to develop more. And Istio maybe gets to draft off of that. Now, we're already seeing the downside of that because. There's some overhead to, I guess, deployment complexity of Istio, and I have no idea how much that has to do with Envoy, and I don't really understand. I don't know your, what your sidecar model is, but in any case, you kind of own the entire stack. I mean, it's it's open source, but and and you've been focused on Linkerd for a longer period of time. Anyway, I just I see these two ecosystems as the Istio ecosystem and the Linkerd ecosystem as both having, you know, looking at it from an engineering perspective, both having a viable potential future, at least you know, to the extent that this is not a winner-take-all container orchestration war. Give me your perspective for the design differences between Istio and Linkerd that people should consider.
1: Yeah. So there's how to unpack this. There's there's a, at least four answers that came to mind while you were while you were asking that question. I guess first I should take a step back and say like I don't want to talk about Istio just to talk about Istio. Like to me, in an ideal world, I would never think about Istio because what matters to me primarily is, can I give Linkerd users the tools that they need to be effective at their jobs, to build these systems, to build the platforms for, you know, for, for their developers and their organizations? You know, and none of that, none of that critical you know, focus requires thinking about Istio at all. On the other hand, you know, we are, we are asked about Istio, you know, on a very regular basis. So we've kind of developed these, you know, the kind of a a way of thinking about it and a set of answers and, and things like that. So I find myself having this conversation kind of much more than I, when I would really want to. Let me address the Envoy thing first. So Envoy is a very widely adopted project. And I think it's a pretty good project, although I haven't used it myself part of the reason why it's so widely adopted is because it's a great building block it's like okay you know we've got a wheel and on top of a wheel well we can build a motorcycle and we can build a car and we can build a a semi truck and they all kind of have different purposes but they're all using this awesome wheel under the hood or you know not under the hood i guess (laughs) 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 under under the axle Engines
0: have wheels, I think. Gear is a kind of wheel.
1: Uh, You know, I'm a computer guy, so I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how that stuff works. I just press a button and make the thing go. But so ultimately, I don't think it matters what the proxy is under the hood. So Linkerd doesn't use Envoy. We use a thing that we call Linkerd proxy, and it's written in Rust, and like, there's a bunch of cool stuff that that we like about it. But ultimately, I don't think it really matters. Like when you are adopting Istio, when you're adopting Linkerd, when you're adopting some kind of service mesh, you know, the kind of what the underlying network stack is, I don't think really affects you in a, in a really direct way. Even if you have an existing kind of Envoy deployment using something like Contour for ingress or something like that, you know, it doesn't really change a lot for you. Every usage of, of of Envoy because it's such a good building block, you know, it's kind of coupled with some with some kind of system to drive Envoy, right? And that's like, okay, Contour is going to drive it for ingress, or Istio is going to drive it for the service mesh, you know. And so when you're interacting with things, when when you're operating things, when you're monitoring them, and you know, you're you're kind of thinking at thinking about it at the Istio level, or you're thinking about it at the Contour level. You're not really the fact that it uses X or, or Y is much less important than like, is it solving these problems for you? Right. Is it doing it in a way that is not expensive either for the machines to run, you know, or more importantly, for your brain to like comprehend. And if it is right, if it's like if it's solving problems for you and it's not insane to operate, then congratulations, you made a good technology choice. And if it's not, then it's not. And, and it's really more about, I think, that level of analysis than, OK, what, what are the components under the hood or you know, under the axle. So finally, to get to kind of the, the Istio question, so I know a lot of the the Istio engineers and they are really good engineers. They're probably much better engineers than, than, than I was back when I was a, an engineer. Now I'm just, a, you know, an email. You're a <laughs> suit. Yeah, that's right. I'm just a suit. And the thing that always seems so interesting to me is I think Istio is a bad project. Like I think it's bad and and I don't mean that in a way that you know the people who work on it are bad because I think they're really good. Right? And so the question for me is like what's the disconnect? Like what happened there? How did you get engineers who were so good working on something that is not good, right? As measured by, you know, a bunch of a bunch of factors, as measured by like human beings actually trying to use it in, in practice. Um, and I think the answer comes down to you know, you kind of touched on those earlier. I think it comes down to marketing. I think there was so much marketing, you know, that was placed around Istio, and there was such a force behind it that it kind of smothered. it was like this this wet blanket that just smothered any kind of possibility of having a, a really honest or direct relationship with users. right? And so as a result, you get something that, is at least you know i i've got to hedge all this because i've never run istio in practice but i'd say the majority of the linkerdy momentum these days is people coming from istio and so like they're kind of telling us why and the level of complexity the level of resource overhead like all that it's just it's really it's really much more than it than it should be and in that sense you know, I think the value props of Istio are great. Like the things that it does are very similar to things that, that Linkerd does, at least for now. And those are all good things, but the cost is so high. And I think it does a, a disservice to the users to say, hey, this is the service mesh, you know, and like, look, it's super complicated, it's super heavy, but you're gonna have to do this, you know, because the service mesh is gonna be this critical part. I, th- I think that's really bad. I think that really is a disservice for the users because now everyone has in their heads, are like, Oh, the service mesh is this complicated thing. Uh, yeah, we don't want to do that. Put that off to like the last possible moment. And it doesn't have to be that way, right? That's, that's like, that's not a core attribute of the service mesh. That's an attribute of Istio. So with that said, and you know, again, every person who I've met who works on Istio is awesome and it's great. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the the weird tension in my mind. The focus that we've taken with Linkerd is quite different. And for us, we're not trying to convince you to get onto a, a cloud, you know, provider where we're just going to operate it. We're going to operate Linkerd for you, and so maybe the complexity doesn't matter or whatever. Like, our adopters are the operators. It's the same folks who are bringing in Kubernetes, who are bringing in, you know, uh, in some cases bringing in Docker and containers to to their organizations. They are the ones who are using who are using Linkerd, who are bringing it in, and so by that lens, we have to make Linkerd as simple as possible. To understand and to operate, because if we have, if we can give you like the, the value props of the service mesh, if we can give you the features around telemetry and and security and reliability, but the cost of using those features is so incredibly high, then I think we we haven't done our jobs. So the focus for us has been, you know, even at the expense of features, has been how do we make Linkerd, you know, the the simplest, lightest. And fastest service mesh that we can. So we can give you the value props, you know, we can give you all the cool things in the mesh without you having to burn a whole bunch of system resources or, or even worse, you know, use your precious brain cells on understanding, you know, a bunch of really complicated APIs.
0: Istio really made me question, what is my role as a Podcaster or journalist or whatever, and and the reason that that happened is because two Cube ago, Google started carpet bombing the cloud native community with Istio marketing. I think this was Copenhagen. That's is if I recall. And you know, I was like, okay, well, I I didn't know that much about service mesh back then, but I was like, okay, cool. This is like Google's kind of service mesh equivalent to Kubernetes or TensorFlow or whatever. So they're going to take this you know, the strategy that they did with with Kubernetes and TensorFlow. They're going to carpet bomb the developer community with kind of this, you know, positive, like, Google love. You know, this is the open source, open cloud candidate from Google. And then... I would talk to people and be like cool so you know I, i'm hearing all these like istio talks and like istio, seeing all this istio marketing like you know do you know anybody who's using it in production and I'd be like no i don't know anybody but i'm you know i'm sure it'll happen eventually and then and then the next kubecon rolls around kubecon north america the one in seattle and it was this it was the same thing you know i would i would be having conversations with people and be like man i'm i'm, I'm excited about istio I'm, be like, okay, do you know anybody that's actually using it? Like, do you know anybody that's having success deploying it? They'd be like, no, but I mean, you know, it's, you know, I, I'm not going to be using Istio for a while either. I'm not going to be, we don't need a service mesh right now. We're just, we're barely even getting our Kubernetes strategy off the ground. We're we're two two or three years away from having a service mesh. And the thing is, in two or three years, Istio is not going to have these performance issues. Istio is going to be one click to deploy. It's going to be simple. It's going to have the security policy. It's going to have load balancing. It's going to have everything you need out of a service mesh. And it made me wonder, is there anything wrong with that? Like, is there anything wrong with the preemptive marketing, with the fake it till you make it, with the build the network effects before you have the software to effectively justify those network effects? And... I don't know the answer to that question. And and that's that's part of what made me kind of interrogate Eric Brewer, even though I really, I like Eric Brewer, I admire him. I may have left him with a bad taste in his mouth, and he may think I'm like uh, the Kara Swisher of the software engineering world. And I don't want to be that, but there is no other like marketing check on the software engineering marketing world. It's all manufactured consent. We're all purchased through sponsorship dollars, me included. And so for me, it was really existential to see that. And, you know, I, I still don't really have an answer to
1: it, but... So Istio caused you to have an existential it did. crisis. It,
0: well, which is great, which is great. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have my journalistic integrity called into question when I look in a mirror thanks to Isti.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Maybe we'll get there with Linkerty one day. Is that God,
0: right? Sorry, not to turn this into like a ther- the therapy session, but I just wanted to like unpack where I was coming from with that interrogation of Eric Brewer.
1: Okay, I think I, I'll but, be fine. I, but I think it's that's a great question to ask. And I think, you know, is it okay to do that? Well, you know, I think, right, okay, from which perspective? Like, certainly it's okay from the perspective of Google, because, like, you want this thing to be out there, right? It's going to take some time to build it. Well, let's lay the groundwork, right? We've we got to make this project successful. If what you care about is making Istio successful, then, like, okay, we're going to use every means at our disposal. Like, why not? It's open source. It's not like we're, you know forcing people to use it. We're just heavily encouraging them. But that's, you know, from the other perspective is like, I, to me, it doesn't seem right to put something out there and not be kind of forthright about its its properties, right? And and that, you know, obviously I'm super biased in this conversation, right? Because I, I, I've i been watching this from the perspective of someone who's like, well, hold on guys, we kind of already had a service mesh over here. And, you know, and so, you know, you can't trust anything that I say because I, I've, yeah. I, I've, I've got a, a horse in, in the game or in the race. But, you know, it, it doesn't seem trying to put that aside as much as I can. It just doesn't seem right. Right. It doesn't. This is like the vaporware kind of a, approach to things. And it just it doesn't seem right to the to do that. And, you know, I life would be a lot easier. Let's put it this way. Life would be a lot easier for me if Istio was awesome and I could just like hop on that bandwagon. Right it's like that that would solve a lot of things I don't want to do I don't want to like have a service mesh fight just to have it like that's not that's not a great use of Time and, and energy to duplicate all this stuff, but I feel like we're in the situation where we have to do this because it's not—it's not solving things for people that we care about, like for 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 the users who are out there with Linkerd. If I could tell them, hey, just use Istio, it'll solve all your problems, and like then we don't have to maintain this thing, and I don't have to sink all this money into like you know all this open source engineering. <laughs> that would honestly that would solve a lot of problems, but it, we can't do that. It's not—it's not right. So. Ultimately, I feel like we have a duty, you know, and a responsibility to not just Linkerd users, but kind of to the Kubernetes ecosystem as a whole to give them what we know is valuable. Right? We know that everything about the service mesh is hugely valuable because we've seen it. We've, we, we've like lived this life, even back in the days of Twitter when like there was no Kubernetes. What we were and, and there were no sidecar proxies. What we were building was effectively the service mesh. A whole bunch of details are different, but we know firsthand, and everyone who works on LinkedIn knows firsthand just how valuable this stuff is. And it just doesn't seem right to not give the world the best possible implementation of that.
0: You raised $10 million from Google Ventures. And I know that Google Ventures is not like a direct arm of Google, but I found it Shakespearean and... (laughs) <laughs> kind of hilarious that you did end up raising 10 million from Google ventures.
1: Yeah, it was actually, it made a lot of sense, you know, so this is, you know, so I'm wearing a couple of hats, you know, in, in, in life these days. So let me take off my like linker maintainer hat and I'll put on my, my buoyant CEO hat, okay. you know, cause it was buoyant that raised the money. Right. Although really what we're doing with it is investing it right, right in Linkerd, And I will admit that there's a certain amount of enjoyment that I get out of the fact that you know, there's ultimately Google money that's going to Linkerd, though. You know, I guess there's also that money goes back to Google because we do testing on uh, some of our testing on GCP. So I don't know. You know, it's this big, <laughs> big incestuous cycle somewhere, somewhere in there. All that I know is that the landlords of the Bay Area are the ones who are ultimately <laughs> getting rich <clears throat> off of the service mesh, right? The true winners of the service mesh wars are the Bay Area landlords. So that was a really it was a really good match for us. GV had a history of investing in uh, really good open source infrastructure companies. CoreOS being kind of the the primary one in our minds. The partner that we worked with there, Dave Minicello, was great. You know, understands the space really well. And you know, they also made it clear to us that you know, although they had the letter G in their name, they were not like you said they're not a strategic arm of of Google. They make these investment decisions based on kind of what they think is going to win in the market, what they think is going to have the best technology, what they think has the best team around it. And so by that measure, they wanted to invest in Buoyant. So, you know, again, speaking with my Buoyant hat, we didn't need the money, but the relationship made a lot of sense for us for those reasons.
0: Do you have any predictions for the next few years, next, I don't know, three to five years, however... uh far you can predict somewhat confidently into the distance about the I guess the interaction between the major cloud providers or you know the degree to which kind of the wars between AWS and Google will spill out into the open source world or you know interactions between or people going into multi-cloud what's your perspective on the different major cloud providers any any thoughts that I can get from you that I wouldn't hear anywhere else
1: oh <laughs> probably probably not i think i i by virtue of focusing so heavily on kind of the cloud native audience you know i see Linkerd adoption in like kubernetes clusters on a variety of clouds and that's kind of like what i understand most viscerally i think the question of like the delicate interbalance between the, the cloud providers Ultimately comes down to like what is the enterprise hybrid cloud strategy and like what what makes sense there and you know does it make Please sense? Sorry, if- do you mean hybrid cloud or multi-cloud? Let's say multi-cloud. Okay. Multi-cloud, you're right. That's a much better. T- See, I'm already like getting myself I'm, in <laughs> well, hot the hybrid water. hybrid
0: cloud is the is the on-prem plus cloud thing.
1: Yeah, right? yeah. No, I mean multi-cloud. Like, how critical is that? Because yeah. if that's really critical for companies, right? If it's really critical, and not just some companies, but for a large class of companies, because there are companies like you know, there's companies like PagerDuty or something that like have to be multi-cloud because, you know, being multi-zone is not enough for them. Multi-region is not enough. They have to, if something goes wrong, they have to be available, you know, no matter what, but that's kind of a special case, right? For ordinary companies that don't have like quite as strict a requirement around that level of availability, does multi-cloud make, you know, is that like a, is that a nice to have, or is that a core, you know, thing that we're going to have to have, as we you know, move into the next couple of years. To me, I think that's what it comes down to. Because if, if, if that doesn't matter, then network effects, you know, which you brought up very, very early on, are the things that, that matter the most, right? Okay, we're on Amazon already. Well, let's just keep going with Amazon and then App Mesh will win over everything and like, you know, problem solved. But if it does matter, okay, well now things get a little more interesting, right? Because now abstraction layers become a lot, a lot more powerful. You know, because you are gonna have to deal with multiple clouds at the same time. But do I have any special insight? Do, can you hear anything from me about this that other people couldn't tell you probably with you know, much, much greater insight? No, no. I'm like, I'm in the little service mesh bubble and, and I can barely see beyond that.
0: You probably do not enjoy searching for a job, Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies— including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com slash daily, you can start your process by taking a quiz. And after the quiz, you get interviewed by TripleByte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1000 signing bonus from Triplebyte because you use the link triplebyte.com/sedaily. That $1000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. Triple Byte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. Triplebyte only cares about whether someone can code, so I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com and take a quiz to get started, there's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com/sedaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. Let's wrap up with just some kind of business strategy conversation. This cloud-native space of company building, I don't have much historical context on on this, the enterprise software industry, but from what I do know, it seems like a very different market than anything in, in history because you have... You have these major cloud providers, you have these gigantic enterprises that are going through a digital transformation. It seems like a great place to be in the kind of company that you are in, the kind of company that you're building, because the market is is rapidly expanding and it's kind of meeting you where you are building towards. But that doesn't mean that your strategy for going to market is is straightforward. It seems like doing sales, managing deals, perhaps even deciding—you know—what is your structure for support engineering or uh, feature engineering, or you know, the, the kind of degree to which you're going to be a service integrator versus uh, just somebody who's building features and throwing them over the wall for somebody to buy through a marketplace. All these questions seem complicated to me tell me your current strategy for going to market
1: sure yeah so let me take off my linker d put on my my point yeah. oh oh i well i had replaced it, boy it your the,
0: <laughs> and your suit you shouldn't be wearing a hat and a suit at the same time
1: well and my monocle okay it's full 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 ceo mode yeah, so you're right. It is complicated. And so far, I think Buoyant has been very lucky in that the stuff that we have touched upon with, with Linkerd was at the right place at the right time. The service mesh, you know, started to take off. Uh, a, lot, a lot of this honestly was from our friends at Google, you know, by promoting Istio so heavily while that, you know, the, that rising tide also <laughs> lifted our boat. You know, which was nice. You know, and uh, we can take a little bit of credit for it. Like, you know, early on, you know, it wasn't clear that focusing on Kubernetes was was like the best approach, and 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 so on. So we were a little smart about it. Oh, oh yeah, we also <laughs> also spent a lot of time getting off the JVM. So obviously you know, that was either a genius move or a genius move that had been preceded by a dumb move. But leaving all that aside, you know, we've been we've been lucky in that everything that we've done in the open source world has been very uh, has garnered a lot of attention and that's making it easy to, to fundraise but you know obviously that there's there's only so far that, that 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 can take you so i see it as there's kind of two levels here the first is one of the things we're definitely seeing with Linkerd is the very early adopters of Linkerd could kind of do everything themselves right they could they would take it they'd like download the code they'd compile it they would deploy it and then only occasionally would they like reach out to us and be like hey we need help with this we're starting to encounter now and i think this is a sign that the service mesh market is maturing we're starting to encounter a set of companies who just need help right They're, they don't have the ability to take on like massive in, uh, infrastructure or even not so massive infrastructure kind of projects and feel confident in themselves. So we're starting to, to find a set of company who just needs help with Linkerd. And so, you know, from my perspective, we kind of have two choices here. One is, one is to say, okay, well, you know, you're on your own. Good luck. The other is to say, okay, we can, we can help you. You know, we can, we can do support we can do services we can make you successful it has to be done in a way that's economically viable for buoyant right <laughs> like you know that there has to be a commercial relationship there but if what you care about is being successful when adopting a service mesh well we can be the company to help you do that and you know that is ultimately support and services i think from the the macro picture it's rare to have a company not impossible it's rare to have a company a, a very fast growing large company, at least that is based purely off of support and services. But my view is that it those are critical. Those are critical components. Those those are those are not sufficient, but they are necessary because you have to give people mechanisms to be successful with your with your projects. And I think that's that's particularly true of like the infrastructure world where it's not, you know, it's not like you drop this thing in and okay, you know, hey we've installed Slack or hey, everyone can sign up for Slack now and you know we don't have to change anything. You know, you got to do stuff. you got to do stuff. As easy as we make Linkerd to get started, you know, pretty soon you're like, okay, well, we've got our existing CA and we need to use that. And then, okay, well, now we need to deploy, you know, the Linkerd proxies outside of Kubernetes and we've got to like get identity working in like, you know, it gets complicated when you start extending into kind of, uh, especially when you extend into what I will call legacy infrastructure and trying not to use it in a, uh, in a pejorative sense. So that's the first answer. The second answer is, which I think is is the more compelling answer and speaks to maybe the, the bigger vision that Buoyant has, is that the word service mesh does not occur anywhere in, in Buoyant's mission statement. Buoyant's mission is purely around helping human beings get to the point where they can be really su- successful in adopting microservices, mm-hmm. right? And that's like independent of Kubernetes, it's independent of Docker, it's independent of any of that stuff. The entire industry, if you step back, the entire industry is going through some massive transformation, right? It's a transformation in how software is built. And it's something you can't stop, right? At least for the vast majority of companies, you are moving on to the cloud. And when you move on to the cloud, you have to do this stuff. It's You can argue, you can fight, but eventually you're going to be there. And so we have to give people the tools to make that happen. And service mesh is certainly one part of that, right? Linkerd will solve a bunch of very engineering-focused, engineering-specific Challenges for you, but there's a lot more to it than that. And this again, it goes back to my experience at, at Twitter, when Twitter moved into microservices. You know, again, no no containers, although we had the JVM and we had C groups, so we kind of had like, you know, uh, container And you know, no no Kubernetes, but we had Mesos. You know, but we had a whole lot of services that changed everything about the company, right? And, you know, uh, just forget about the technology, the way that engineering teams were were communicating with each other and were operating was totally different, the way that HR worked was different because the way that the teams were structured was being different, the way that finance worked was different because now we had all these services and some of them were really expensive to run and some of them were cheap, like every aspect of the company started changing. And that's what I think, that's the really interesting set of things that, that Buoyant, as opposed to Linkerd can be helpful with, right? Can we help organizations embrace that change, not just like adapt to it, but but embrace it and that requires a lot more than just solving the kind of technology under the hood.
0: It sounds like it would be awesome to just hire a bunch of support engineers and deploy those support engineers to helping out with the large enterprises that have linker D problems, because not only is that probably profitable, immediately profitable or near close to immediately profitable, you get a great feedback loop into what enterprises need from you which will eventually allow you to expand into market adjacencies that you'll see coming thanks to your enterprises.
1: That's a really good point. You know, we're a bunch of open source nerds. We have no idea what happens inside, or at least we originally did not have an idea of what happens inside, you know, kind of the engineering mindset of someone who works at a really big company that, you know, has these 24 month roadmaps and all these initiatives. And like, we had no idea. And every commercial relationship that we added buoyant has tremendous value, you know the money's nice of course, but just having access sitting in those meetings, understanding what exactly is happening on these on these and what the timeline is and what the roadmaps are and what the challenges they have to face that's been hugely valuable for us. So that's another big big benefit of, of developing a really strong support and services relationship with your customers
0: let's close on a just an engineering question because you you alluded to getting off of the JVM so I remember at Kubecon. I guess 2 years ago at this point it was the Austin Cubecon. There was a the night I got there there was like a an event cuz you were announcing your new service mesh conduit or your new service proxy conduit. And so conduit came out and I was like okay wait so they have two service things now or proxies or meshes or something and then you know it's like this one's in rust and then over time it became Linkerd 2 or you rolled it into Linkerd or something and and it seems like it's worked out well for you like in retrospect but what i'm wondering is like did the strategy play out as you intended or does it seem like a does your strategy seem wise in retrospect Cause it, was, it was kind of an unconventional thing like let's spin up a second product which gives us kind of a green field to play around in and then we get to roll that into the old product or replace the old product with the new product i mean it looks pretty nice in retrospect i just don't know if, if that was how you envisioned it up front
1: Yeah. Well, you know, that's a hard question to answer. Like, do we do this right in, you know, even in retrospect, I think there's a world in which, so we were looking at Rust, you know, back in 2015 before Linkerd even existed, we had some early prototypes in Rust and we were like, oh, this is really cool. But at that point, the language was changing, you know, (laughs) like the code would stop working because the language had changed underneath it. And we're like, ah, okay, we don't really want to be on the JVM, but it doesn't feel like we can really build on Rust right now. And you know, we, we had just come out of Twitter, so, which had all this technology built out. It had already production tested all of it for us, and so we were able to tell the story early on, you know, by building on, you know, what I would call the Twitter stack of Finagle, Scala, Netty, the JVM. We were able to tell the story very early on mm-hmm. of like, hey, this is production ready. Because look, Twitter uses it at scale, Pinterest uses it at scale. There were a bunch of companies that were using that stack. scale and that's a hard bar you know for a startup especially to get over it's like hey it's ready for production because you know you're you're just some no-name startup there so that was the real value i think you know maybe there's a world in which we never did that and we and we just like stuck it out with rust and we could have avoided having to do a a rewrite last year which is effectively what we did you stuck it out with java so we started out no, 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 no. So rather than starting with the Twitter stack, which was which was Scala oh, the we JVM, started rest Maybe we should have just ah, stuck it out. Like I don't know. That's that's an interesting like thought exercise. But either way, you know, what had happened was, you know, Twitter, sorry, Linkerd got, got very, very popular very very rapidly, but it was clear to us, you know, even you know, certainly uh, well before Austin that the JVM was going to be too much of an impedance mismatch for what people for yeah. what people wanted. There were people who deployed it who deployed Linkerd as a sidecar, the Linkerd JVM as a sidecar. And like, even though it was 100, sitting at 150 megs, they were like, you know, I don't care because you know, these are all Java apps and it's like oh, two yeah. gigs. But then there were other people who had like these, you know, 20 meg Go microservices and they're like, you know, I'm not gonna add a 50 <laughs> meg sidecar. So I think there's a second inflection point there where we could have just been like, you know what? We're gonna address enterprise stuff only and enterprise is all in the JVM. So like, we're just gonna be the enterprise, you know, service mesh and, you know, adjust that JVM market. And uh, I'm glad I we just didn't. Said that might
0: have worked out with GraalVM. You could, maybe GraalVM would have lowered your footprint.
1: Yeah, it's certainly possible, though Graal has not been, we've been keeping our eye on it. It has not moved as fast as, like, it's still, last I checked, not able to run Linkerd because there's some complicated stuff that that Finagle especially does and that Netty does. This is like, it's not just regular JVM code, this is like super advanced JVM code, right? And Scala and, and, and Netty and, you know, all this asynchronous stuff. Anyways, although as a, a side note, IBM's OpenJ9 JDK has improved things a lot for, for, Linkerd, for Linkerd JVM. Okay, anyways, so yeah, getting back to the conduit thing. So, you know, we were like, okay, we, you know, it's not going to be a long-term solution for us. We have to get off the JVM. We were really nervous about what we were doing. We knew we want to build on top of Rust and on top of Go. Those were like natural choices. I actually wrote a long article about this for, for InfoQ, so if you search for like infoq and linker dv2 or something you'll 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 be able to read exactly what I'm going to tell you. You got a
0: promise to publish your next article on software engineering daily.
1: All right, deal. Definitely. It's on did. infoq. You
0: hear that? Yeah, that's right. Infoq is my istio.
1: <laughs> I'll just have to have a
0: just kidding. I'm not I'm not competitor focused. I worked at Amazon.
1: Right. <laughs> Good. So we wanted to do something that we knew was going to be risky, which was like rebuild stuff on top of rust on top of go. And we were worried at the time of like, if this didn't pan out, that it was going to kind of destroy the Linkerd brand. Cause Linkerd was getting a ton of adoption, you know, you know, even with the JVM being an impediment. And so we decided to call it conduit, like to, to just kind of sandbox well, sandbox a weird term to make it a separate project with a different brand, you know, and to see how much interest we could get doing that. And to kind of treat it as an experiment. And if it played out, then great, you know, and if it didn't, then fine, you know, Linkerd is still going to continue on. And so that was, gosh, I, you know, I can I can't even keep my timeframes right anymore. I think that was kind of the tail end of 2017, and then all of 2018 was putting tons of resources into into Conda first half of 2018, and it was just it was working. Everything was working. We had early adopters using it. There were bugs. There were weirdnesses, but everything about it just felt right. It felt like this this is what the service mesh should be, and so by the by the middle of the year, we were like, okay, it's clear this is the path forward for Linkerd. Right, so let's merge this thing in, you know, and, and then in September of last year, we, we launched officially GA'd Linkerd 2.0, which you know, was that same conduit code base with a whole lot of you know, extra kind of development on top of it. And that's where the majority of our, our new adoption has been. And the, certainly the majority of our engineering effort has been on Linkerd. You know, now we're at 2.3, next month we'll have 2.4. We're catching up with the 1.x feature set. So we had a huge feature set thanks to Finagle. Um, With 1.x, so with 2.x, we're now catching up. 2.4 will have traffic shifting, you know, so you'll be able to do blue-green deployments and and things like that. It'll have SMI support. It'll have all these these cool things. 2.3 already had all the TLS stuff that we can never actually do really well with the JVM because it was so hard to get it deployed as a sidecar, among other reasons. That's the story. Yeah. There was certainly a period of time where it was confusing for people to have like these two things, especially from one small startup, but hopefully, you know, we don't have to talk about conduit ever again. We just have this beautiful Linkerd, and you know, everyone uses it and is very happy with
0: it. Yeah. No, I I think, I think it worked out really well, but that's Uh, the backstory. And I mean, from conversations I've had with people about rust, it really does, does seem like the right language for the job.
1: It gives us a bunch of really nice things. It gives us the ability to and so the Rust is in the data plane, so it's the actual proxies. Yes. The control plane is is all on go. What Rust gives us it gives us a couple of things. First, it gives us the ability to write native code, which is great, so we can be as fast as possible, you know, which is important for a, a user-space proxy. There's no there's no garbage collection, there's none of that. You know, it's it's basically as fast. The Rust people will claim it faster than, than C or C. And then it also gives us a lot of awesome security guarantees around the way that it manages and, and enforces memory usage, sidesteps a whole class of buffer overflow exploits and things that historically have been very problematic with, with C or C++. And then you know for the Scala programmers in us, it gives us these really nice higher level abstractions where we can do things like hey, all the memory for this request, you know, you know. so we're allocating memory as this request comes in. And then, you know, you want to then free the memory when the request terminates. And that way, you know, you keep your, your latency profile really, really sharp, because you are, you're doing all the memory allocation, you're amortizing that really evenly over the request flow. Okay, but you can do that in Rust by like, just, know, I'm gonna get myself in trouble, because I don't actually <laughs> program in Rust. Careful, the Rust community is serious. By deleting that feature, or just terminating the feature, whatever the right word is, sorry, Rust people. Like, and then because everything has been been, you know, kind of the ownership and and everything has been enforced. You have these nice zero cost abstractions. You can delete all the memory for that request in a really nice, straightforward manner. It doesn't involve, you know, thousands of lines of spaghetti code. So it's been a really nice uh, move for us, especially coming to it as, as Scala programmers who are kind of familiar with, you know, abstractions and kind of higher order programming.
0: Well, let's leave it at that. William, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been really fun talking.
1: Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source, it's free to use, and GoCD has all the features that you need for continuous delivery. You can model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. You can use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your cloud-native project. With GoCD on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow... You let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly, and GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org se daily and learn how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, and they have talked in such detail about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily. ThoughtWorks was very early to the continuous delivery trend and they know about continuous delivery as much as almost anybody in the industry it's great to always see continued progress on GoCD with new features like Kubernetes integrations so you know that you're investing in a continuous delivery tool that is built for the long term you can check it out yourself at gocd.org wow